Hello everyone and welcome back to the Film Score Podcast for this quarterly bonus episode where I'm going to try to quickly cover some of the best and most notable film scores that released in the last three months from October through December 2021. But first I suppose I'll cover that the Golden Globes released their winner for best score which was Hans Zimmer's Dune. Frankly I thought that all five scores nominated were quite good and it was Actually, the surprising lineup where all five would have been deserving winners. I know that Dune was not exactly to everyone's liking, but Zimmer seems to have become a bit more controversial in these last few years, or a bit more divisive, so that's not a surprise. To start off on a positive note, I think three scores that were all really lovely to listen to and filled me with a bit of a sense of joy were The French Dispatch by Alexander Desplat. The Electrical Life of Louis Wayne by Arthur Sharp, and Come On, Come On by Bryce and Aaron Dessner. Although each one's instrumentation style is very different, they each really just fill you with a sense of joy. Desplat's features kind of his signature style that he's developed over the years, working with Wes Anderson. Quite silly, whimsical, and really fun. And I think Arthur Sharp has some similar stylings in his score, especially with the theremin that adds a little more lightheartedness. He leans a bit heavier on the orchestral side. And come on, come on, I don't think quite hits these same fun highs as the others, but instead there's something very gentle, very comforting. It's a much sparser acoustic score, and it's just this caress that rocks you and lets you know that at the end of the day, through all of this, everything might just be okay. One of my most anticipated scores this year was Jim Williams' score to Titan. I've been a big fan of Jim Williams' work for years, probably ever since I saw A Field in England, so I'm always looking forward to everything he does. You might remember I was a big fan of his score for Possessor as well, and I was a little let down, actually, when I first heard this. There's some really fantastic moments at the end of the score, this baroque, pummeling grandeur, but that's really it. Or at least that's what I thought. Much of the score is really like an industrial minimalism. Sparse sounds and noises, but there isn't a lot to latch onto. And while I'm a big fan of drone and of noise, it felt like there was something missing. But after really thinking about the score, thinking about the film, and listening over and over, I begin to appreciate that Williams develops the palette throughout the course of the film, throughout the course of the score, and that becomes the story for this main character, Alexia. As she grows, so too does the score itself, rather than simply focusing on uh, growing motifs instead. And so I'm still not sold on it as a standalone listen, but I think it was very clever and very daring, and I know that some people were not happy about that, but I think it works very well. And another score that people weren't happy about was The Matrix Resurrections by Johnny Klemek and Tom Tukler. Of course, the first three films were done by Don Davis, scored by Don Davis, and they're some of the most memorable, iconic scores and sounds of the last 20-some-odd years. So it isn't a surprise that a lot of people were quite upset that Don Davis wasn't going to return for this. And I think that that creates a, a really unfair comparison, although maybe one that really can't be avoided. 
Obviously, everyone's going to be comparing this new score to Davis's original three, just as they're going to be comparing the new film to the prior three entries as well. And it's easy to do that, especially because the score seems to, at times, rely on so heavily some of Davis's original work and the sounds that he had originally bored into our heads. But the film's also very much about ignoring or pushing away or growing from nostalgia. And so with that in mind, it makes more sense that the two composers didn't want to simply and solely recreate or try to mimic the prior scores, simply be repeating what's already been done. And while I think that they do suffer, in part because of the comparison, in part because the original scores are so good, when you try to listen to them without Davis's in mind, it's a very solid score. It becomes a little more electronically overlaid that I think some people won't like because of how synthetic it feels, but there are some very good string motifs in particular that help drive some of the action, some of the emotion. My favorite part, though, is actually on the score release itself. There's about eight or so remixed tracks that are all very heavily electronic, and the remix is done by various electronic artists. And they're so over the top and a ton of fun, and they're not score music at all, but they're probably the most enjoyable aspect of the listen, as long as you're up for something that's a bit lighthearted and doesn't take itself too seriously. Another score that certainly doesn't take itself too seriously was Marco Beltrami's score to Venom, Let There Be Carnage. Now, I'd actually heard the original Venom back when I was first getting into film music coverage. It was by Ludwig Göransson, and it was surprisingly let down, I think because of how seriously it took itself. It felt very much like a straight-ahead, bog-standard action superhero score. Beltrami ignores that, and he really embraces the, at the end of the day, silly nature of these Venom films. After all, it's really a relationship drama between Eddie Brock and the symbiote that's inside of him. And the first 10 or 15 minutes of the film's focus on Eddie Brock makes that very, very clear. And so there is a constant sinister edge with the carnage piano motif, which is a gothic foreboding motif that repeats a few times throughout the film, throughout the score. But there's a lot of unexpected elements like crunchy guitar riffs and pummeling, pounding dubstep almost. It's kind of like a, a menacing facade beneath which there's a mischievous core. That was the perfect balance for Beltrami to strike. A couple scores do take themselves quite seriously, one of which was a new score for Halloween Kills. And I always wonder, how many times can these themes be used before they become redundant and boring and we think to ourselves, we've heard this enough, give us something new. I'll tell you that hasn't happened yet. Somehow, John and Cody Carpenter and Daniel Davies keep working with the same material and keep making it really interesting. Here, the familiar becomes uglier and grittier. It's been battered and burnt and damaged, and there's just something even more sinister and frightening about it. While they do give some emotional, introspective moments at times, that relentless feeling always comes back, which makes me think, and it makes me feel quite certain, in fact, that their eventual score for Halloween Ends is going to be similar. 
It'll be things that we're familiar with, and yet done in a way that keeps it surprising and keeps it interesting. There are two Hans Zimmer releases that I can't forget about. One of which is The Art and Soul of Doom, which I actually reviewed a few weeks ago. And this is actually not a score release, it's a, a companion music to the book that's The Art and Soul of Doom. These really beautiful pictures and concept art that you're meant to listen to Zimmer's release as a, a supplemental piece. And because of that, it's really just ambient music. And I think a lot of people, especially seeing the length, I think it's over an hour, maybe an hour and a half, got very turned off, thinking that it was an afterthought. And for those unfamiliar with ambient, it, it can understandably feel like that. When you have these very long cues, maybe 10 plus minutes, one of them's I think 25 or so, that are very similar to just stretched out motifs, and everything's slowed down. But what it does is it creates a separate new envisioning of the familiar. And I don't know if it always works. I think it does suffer from a lack of variation, which is ironic coming from me, given my enjoyment of drone. But that's something that good ambient music requires, a gradual evolution and growth that presents us with a new world and then slowly our perspective is changed. And here it's really plopping us down into somewhere that we're already familiar with, whether be it from watching the film or listening to his score, and little changes from that. So it's quite effective in evoking that feeling that we've already had, but it doesn't do enough to advance upon that. And interestingly, a lot of people actually think that No Time to Die was Hans Zimmer's best score of the year, but I think that alone is enough to tell you how good it is. It is quite refreshing seeing him going back to a more orchestral style, and I was really looking forward to hearing Johnny Marr on the guitar as well. And it is great. It has some homages to older scores that really made a lot of Bond film and Bond film score fans quite happy. That's a lot of fun, and I think was a great way to cap off the end of the Daniel Craig era of Bond. Two other high-profile scores were Eternals by Raman Javadi and Ghostbusters Afterlife by Rob Simonson. Now, Eternals is actually a really good entry from Javadi, and I think is a nice job of elevating back to the film music forefront. His score for Reminiscence earlier this year was just okay, which is, I think, a bit of a surprise given his talent and his exposure. So it's nice seeing him back on top of the game. And it's a very good score, has some surprisingly memorable themes, but one does have to wonder how much those are going to come back, given the future of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the MCU, and how it's going to pan out is still so up in the air, at least so unknown from the average viewer's perspective. On the flip side, Simonson's score for Ghostbusters Afterlife, similar to No Time to Die, does rely a lot on Elmer Bernstein's score to the original film. It has some of the classic themes and instrumentation that fans of the series were so happy about. And it's an actually an interesting comparison to the score for The Matrix Resurrections. These different takes on nostalgia and memory. But Simonson goes a lot above that as well. 
it's not just a modern rendition of prior music. He really builds on it a lot, and I think it really sets him up as a top composer moving forward, or at least someone to continue to keep your eye on. Someone who was in a similar position not too long ago was Johnny Greenwood, who now has Spencer and The Power of the Dog, and frankly is looking at potentially two Academy Award nominations and a very likely win for The Power of the Dog. That score is kind of like a revisionist western in some ways. I know some people were kind of surprised hearing it and then realizing the setting of the film, but recall that the film is in itself set in what we consider the traditional western. It's more around the turn of the century in a wealthy setting. Well, it's not your typical cowboys and Indians setting or gunfighting. I think that, in part, explains why it has such a different unexpected palette in some ways. But it's also a very clever score. You have a lot of work done that kind of mimics the sound of these cattle herds that feature so prevalently. Or Greenwood playing the cello like a banjo to reflect Benedict Cumberbatch's character playing the banjo throughout the film as well. The score also does a lot of work in ratcheting up tension and letting the audience know of tension between characters when it might not be particularly obvious. That's a, a sign of a great film score, that it doesn't simply reflect what's on screen, but it gets into what's implied or what's going on in the characters' heads and helps to pull that out. And while it's a very unconventional score and quite difficult to listen to on its own, it works so well to picture that between that, its unconventional styling and Greenwood's name, you can see why it's gotten so much acclaim. The score of his that I actually prefer from this year is Spencer, though. I love its mix of classical and jazz, reflecting the tension between the royal family and the tradition of it, and Princess Diana's push against that, and how her character at times is moving away from it, or simply finding herself lost in this surreal world inside of her head. And again, it's it's a score that I think is more approachable, although the styling is equally as unconventional, but something about it is absolutely gripping, and it's one of those scores where from the first few notes you hear it and it sends some some feeling through your body that this is unlike anything you've probably heard or will. Another score that was like that was This Game is Called Murder by Pam McCreary. And it actually kind of reminded me of Danny Elfman's recent solo work. This unbridled, unrestrained, rocking eccentricity. The score itself has a, has a lot of rock elements and new wave elements, and there's brass instruments and very strange sung vocals throughout. And frankly, I don't know of much like it at all. It's such a strange score, and it's so much fun. But you have to be in the mood for this style, and you have to be prepared for something that's almost pure anarchy, that's just complete chaos, that is going to pummel you in a good way for about an hour. Unfortunately, there's actually a lot more scores that I want to cover. Daniel Pemberton released two scores, The Rescue and Being the Ricardos, the latter of which in particular I think is very good. 
Nicholas Patel, of course, scored the very popular Don't Look Up, which was, at first, I think, a score that I thought was a bit on the weaker side, and then, again, listening to it another time and another time, made me realize that it strikes this balance between winking to the audience and this knowing satire, but not going too far and making everything a complete joke. It keeps trauma in tension and makes it clear that there are real stakes. It's a hard balance to strike that Patel handles really well, and it's always nice hearing him working in jazz and working in the orchestra because he's so good at it, one of the best working film composers in that style. Deacon Hinchcliffe scored The Lost Daughter, which I think is a sneakily good score that has somehow gone under the radar a lot, but I think the film getting a, a bit of a wider release and being more and more available is finally cueing people into how good of a score this was. Actually, if you heard me talk with Eric Gregson Williams not too long ago, he pointed it out by name is how much he enjoyed it, and who am I to disagree with that? Nick Cave and Warren Ellis released another score. It's really mesmerizing, The Velvet Queen. I won't even try saying its French name because, well, I don't want to embarrass myself. But I think they called it uh, Man in Reverence and Wonder. It's a gorgeous celebration of the beauty of the world, of humanity standing by and simply being in awe of what's around us. And like a lot of their scores, it's one that I can put on and listen to on repeat, almost indefinitely. And finally, Alex Weston released The Novice, which at first didn't really resonate with me, but as so often happens, listening to it more made me appreciate just how good it is. This shouldn't be a surprise. Alex Weston's been doing great work since The Farewell, and well, probably even before that. It's just another great entry in the catalog of this composer that I think, hopefully soon, will be getting on bigger projects and will be getting more recognition for how great work he's doing. And of course, there are even more that I didn't cover. There's simply too many that release. But at the very least, I hope this is a, a useful survey for some of the better scores that have released in the last few months. And some notable ones that not everyone will like, but are certainly worth checking out. And of course, keep listening as there are plenty more interviews coming up in the future. And hopefully very soon, I'll have a, a brief episode on some of my favorite film scores from 2021. So a tough year really narrowing it down, but I'm almost done. Now, until then, happy listening.